Judges chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord has done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath Eris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they had groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out of them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord had left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonites, and the Hevites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. May God bless the reading of his word. So, I was going to leave the football game out of my comments today. But that has to be the most ambivalent, ambiguous sports prayer I've ever heard. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said, first of all, that the Patriots might win, which pleases some people here and displeases others. But then I think he said that if the Patriots win, that calls into question the sovereignty of God. 
So I think there's a little surprise. And I'm not sure how many people have actually said amen to that prayer if they listened to it. But here we go. You know, uh, it's a good illustration for what we're going to talk about today. Because being a Christian should affect a, a lot of things. We're confident it does affect a lot of things. So we're having, we can't call it a Super Bowl party, because Super Bowl is, is uh, copyrighted. We're, we're having a big game party this afternoon, at which we promise you, Pats fans can feel welcome, and Seahawks fans can feel welcome, and Pats haters can feel welcome. I don't know how we're going to do it, and I actually won't be there because I can't stand the stress of watching football, but I'm sure Pastor David will arrange a peaceable evening that everybody can enjoy a game because being Christian affects everything in life, including how we exercise a sports allegiance. Just as a role model, I tell you a quick story and then we move on. This is all ad-lib, so hopefully it'll come out organized. Uh, you know, David Rowe is a member of an organization called OMF, and Irene and I used to be a member of that organization. I tell you a story from the days when OMF was called CIM, because all its work was in China, China in the mission. During World War II, the Japanese, obviously before World War II, but during World War II, the Japanese invaded and occupied a, a great swath of China. And when World War II broke out, Japan was aligned with Germany, and of course, enemy to uh, Canada, U.S., U.K. So in China, the, the parts that are occupied by the Imperial Army, they uh, took all the British and Canadian and American missionaries and put them in camps, internment camps. But they left the Germans alone. Now you know we're Christians, right? And Christ uh, is greater than football allegiance. Christ is greater than national allegiance. So you know that Christ should be greater. We shouldn't side with our country against Christians just because it's our country. But in reality, it's not always easy to live that way, with, either with football or with war. But an extraordinary thing happened. is those German CIMers, who were not interned, went out and bought groceries and clothes for the British and the American and the Canadian who were interned. Because obviously in a prison camp, you don't get what you need. And so it was the German OMFers, the German CIMers, that supplied the Allied in camp. Being a Christian really needs to affect how we do everything. Our, our reflex action, the first thing we do inherently, we don't act as Christians inherently. We act as people of our culture inherently. And basically it's our culture that has most time with us, gives us from birth, and it trains us to act a certain way. Reality is socially constructed is what sociologists called, or reality is socially construed. But basically, whatever seems right to us is what we've picked up from our culture. And then Christ comes into our lives and he transforms us gradually. And we don't often see it. Now, one of the great things about being in a bicultural church is you will never understand how your culture has shaped your faith unless you live in a bicultural environment. And you come into a bicultural environment and you think, boy, those people of that other culture, they're doing something weird here. That, that, that's really just, that doesn't make any sense at all. And that becomes a mirror to reflect your own culture. And then you can become more analytical. A am I acting here like a Christian 
or I'm acting here like, say, an American or an OBC. So, really, culture shapes our faith, and Christ is trying to pull us back slowly, gradually. It's a lifelong process that he's pulling us back out of our culture. Now, our faith should affect everything. But the things that really get highlighted publicly are the places where our faith puts us in opposition to our culture. You know, sometimes our faith applauds things that our culture does. So when Warren Buffett or Bill Gates gives a big chunk of their fortune to uh, alleviate poverty or for social concerns issues, our faith commends that. And when Christians do the same thing, the world commends that. And it gets a little bit of attention, but not a great deal. When, when uh, Christian doctors go serve in Africa and in the course of things come down with Ebola and then their lives are at risk, our culture commends that. And when other people do it that aren't Christians, we commend it. So these are areas where our Christian faith and our culture coalesce. It's particularly where Christian faith and culture conflict that it becomes a hot-button issue. So when one of the doctors who had been uh, had contracted Ebola came back to the U.S., and once he recovered and he was doing all these interviews, people were asking him about his, what motivated him to go, and he would talk about Jesus. And there was some criticism in the press, not necessarily by the reporters, but by responders, you know, the people who email or blog in about the reports, saying it's great what he did, but could he talk, stop talking about Jesus? It got to the point where one editorial in Slate said, look, if he's willing to do this with his life for Jesus, let him talk about it. But, but here's one of the crucial areas where our faith and our culture conflict. American culture rejects the notion that any God is the one sole true God. And so if we say Christ is the only way, our culture protests about that. Another obvious area where our faith and our culture conflict is in our sexual ethics. Now, there's a lot of different aspects of sexual ethics where our culture and our faith conflict. There's one red, hot red button issue right now. You know, there was an article in Time magazine this week about evangelical churches that are embracing the notion of same-sex marriage. Uh, one Nashville megachurch recently... Um, the, the, how do you get your sermon link on Time Magazine front page? The whole one hour, the, the fellow preached a one hour sermon and it was there linked on the front page of Time Magazine because he was from Nashville, evangelical church, big church, mega church, so it's conspicuous. And he came out this week saying that his church was going to uh, marry people, same-sex attraction, and uh, invite them into leadership and there will be no distinction between heterosexual and homosexual marriage. And so there's going to be a lot of this going on. Churches that are rethinking their stance on this issue because it conflicts with our culture. Often we don't notice the issue if we agree with our culture. But, but really, the culture affects everything about our faith, and so our faith should challenge and endorse some things in our culture and question other things. You know, our faith should have a bearing on our economics. Our faith should have our bearing on how we view race and ethnicity. 
Our faith should have a bearing on our philosophical commitments, like Christ is the only way. Our faith should have bearing on our personal relationships. Our faith should have bearing on our sexual ethics. And let's not make this all about gay marriage. Because our faith should have bearing, first of all, on who we decide to marry. Oh, on who we decide to marry in the first place. And what criteria. What role looks plays in that criteria. Our faith should have a bearing on that. What role uh, finances plays in that criterion. Our faith should have a bearing on that. Our faith should have a bearing on whether or not we stay married once we're married. Our faith should have a bearing on who we have sex with before marriage and after marriage. Our faith should have a bearing on who we marry. Heterosexual, homosexual. Our faith should have a bearing on a lot of these issues. But often it doesn't, and we highlight the places where our faith contrasts with our culture. This is what we're going to look at today from Judges. The relationship between faith and culture. Because we can see in the history of the people of God, in the Israelites in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, their biggest mistake was this. They uncritically assimilated to their culture. Their biggest mistake was not that they worshipped other gods. That was a manifestation of the underlying mistake. The biggest mistake was not that they intermarried with the Canaanites who didn't believe in God or the same God. That's the manifestation of their underlying mistake. Basically, the mistake that they made was this. They lived among the Canaanites, the Canaanites lived in their midst, and they assimilated to their culture. They adopted their cultural stance on God and gods, and they adopted their cultural stance on sexual ethics. Two of the primary pressing issues for us today. Do we adopt the cultural stance or the biblical stance? Those are two same issues that they faced, and we want to take a look at it together. But first, let's back up both for the sake of those of you who've been here for a while and maybe losing track of where we're going. We've, this whole year we're going to be looking at the f- flow of the Bible story throughout the Old Testament. And mostly what we've been focusing on is blessings from God. The Bible starts out, Genesis 1 and 2, by describing utopia in Eden. And then into that comes the fall. Man sins and that corrupts man, and that corrupts his relationship with God, that corrupts his relationship with each other, that corrupts his family, that corrupts his relationship with nature, and the fall comes in. And then the rest of the Bible is telling the story about redemption, about restoring Eden. Looks like I need a little help with this, Derek. Thank you. So then you've got the promises of God, of descendants and of land. But what God is doing is rebuilding this world, cleaning this world up, cleansing it, bringing it, restoring it back to the days of Eden. So mostly what we've looked at so far in this series is the blessings of God. But there's something else that goes on here. God is not just offering to bless us. God is calling us into relationship. And so with blessing comes a necessity of response. God is calling us to reciprocate. And we've looked at that some, to some degree. And there's only two responses that God's asking for from us. God is asking for our holiness. 
He's telling us how to live and inviting us to live that way. God is calling us to worship him and him alone. And that's all we've been looking at the last, say, two or three months. What you have is the blessings of God and our reciprocation, what he expects of us in return. And it's not like our obedience is earning anything from him or our worship is earning anything from him. It's he's shown us grace and now he calls us into relationship with him. Holiness and worship, worship and holiness, holiness and worship. That's all he's asking for from us. Now, last week, we looked at Israel gaining land. The second promise from God was that they would have a place to call their own, a place where they could be safe, a place where they could raise families, a place where they could have fellowship with God. And we looked at last week at how God brought them into that land. But now there's a surprise in the book of Judges. Listen as I read from the story of the book of Judges, chapter 1. All 12 tribes, all 12 clans of Israel received land in the, new, in the new country. But then there was something odd that happened with all of this. Chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots filled with iron. The Israelites, the tribe of Judah, the clan of Judah, invaded the new land. And they conquered a fair bit of it. But they couldn't drive out the Canaanites because the Canaanites had chariots. And they could use iron weapons. Chapter 1, verse 21. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. So the clan of Benjamin invaded the new land. And they drove out and conquered some of the people. But they couldn't conquer them all and stayed living among them. Chapter 1, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Ibleam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. And so the people of the clan of Manasseh could not drive out the Canaanites. And in chapter 1, verse 29. Nor did the Ephraimites... Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. But the Canaanites continued there to live among them. Chapter 1, verse 30. Nor did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitran or Nahalal. So these Canaanites lived among them. But Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. So first, Judah mostly succeeds. And then these next four clans, they take over the land, but the Canaanites still live there. And now it's even weaker because now it's really the Israelites living among the Canaanites. Not just the Canaanites living among the Israelites. Chapter 1, verse 31 to 32. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Achlab or Aksib or Helba or Ephek or Rehab. The Asherites, the Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Chapter 1, verse 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. And finally, the worst of all, chapter 1, verse 34. The Amorites confined the clan of Dan to the hill country, not allowing them 
to come into their plain and take possession of their land. Now, what you've got going on in Judges then is that you've got an intermingling. The, the, the people of Israel are living among the people of Canaan. Now, then the lesson we don't take from this is somehow we should try and for, live in Christian communities or all students must go to Christian colleges. There are good reasons for Christian colleges, but not all students have to go to Christian. You know, it's not that we should live in a cocoon and protect ourselves. That's not the point of the text. But what this text does do is show us what can happen when the people of God live among those who are not the people of God. The people whose primary allegiance should be to God live among those whose primary allegiance has never been to God. Well, what happens in that case? And so we see, in chapter 2, picks up from there. In chapter 2, verse 11. Israel is living amongst the Gentiles, among people that, among polytheists, among people that worship other gods. And here's how the process develops. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him, and they served Baal and the Ashtoreth. What happened to Israel is what commonly happens. We'd like to believe that our views of God and our views of life, of economics, of sexual morality, of ethnicity and race, we'd like to believe that all of these are shaped by Scripture. But mostly what they're shaped by is our culture. And here's Israel affirming that there is only one God. Or here is the one God telling Israel that there is only one God. But everybody around them lives in a different sort of world. Everybody around them lives where you can worship this God and that God. Bring in new gods. Exchange them for old gods. And so Israel begins to do that. And they worship, and they don't necessarily stop the worship of Yahweh, but they stop the exclusive worship of Yahweh. And they embrace other gods. And the second step of this, in verse 14, in his anger, God, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. God says, look, if you're going to break this covenant, if you're going to break this relationship with me, God's blessed this people and gave them the land. But now they said, we're not going to worship you alone. We're not going to give you credit for this alone. We're going to worship other gods as well. And God says, if you're going to break this relationship, then I'm going to stop the blessings. And their lives turned hard. And then in the midst of their misery, the third step in this cycle, they cry out to God. And God is merciful and forgiving. And in verse 16 we read, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of their raiders. And God liberated them from the oppression. But there's one more step in this cycle that begins in verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges. They would not listen to their leaders, but they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Now, if you grasp this four-step cycle, you've got the whole book of Judges. You've got the whole thing that's going on at this point. They turn from God and worship the gods and the culture around them. God puts them under judgment, under discipline, and they suffer. In their misery, they call out to God for deliverance, and he delivers them. And then 
finally, after a while, once the deliverer has died, they slide back in to adopting the gods of their culture. This is the continual process that happens throughout the book of Judges. And one cycle after another, at least eight times in the book of Judges, this is the cycle that defines the book of Judges. God has given Israel the land and they moved into the land. But then they start taking up the values of the people around them in that land. And then you see it finally in chapter 3. There's a summary for this whole chapter, the last few verses in chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Israelites lived among them. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. Living among them, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to the Canaanite sons. And they served their gods. Here's the problem. Not only did they live among, but they adopted their values. They adopted the values in two ways. They intermarried. They adopted the same sexual values, mores. And then they had served the other gods as well as their own. Remember the slogan, the Christian slogan, about how we should live? That we should be in the world, but not of the world? We cannot avoid being in the world. But we can, through Scripture and the Spirit working on our hearts, we can avoid being of the world. In this case, the Israelites were in the world. They were in Canaan. And they were of the world. They became like Canaanites. They lived like Canaanites. And they lived like Canaanites in two ways, particularly. In intermarriage, and their sexual ethics, and in worship, their religion. What is God saying to us from their mistakes? We realize that we face those same two pressures for the same reason. We face pressures... Hmm, if not to worship other gods, because we're allowed to do whatever we want to do in our private, but at least we, we face pressure to affirm that all gods are equally legitimate. And we may not have to do like the Israelites did and, and embrace the worship of Canaanite gods, but at least we're expected to embrace the concept of Canaanite gods, that their gods are equally valid, that there is not one god. We also come under pressure. Hmm. And we should come under more pressure for our sexual ethics. The reason we don't come under pressure entirely for our sexual ethics is because often our sexual ethics slide into our culture's ethics rather than biblical ethics. You know, the, the decisions about who and when we have, who we have sex with and when we have sex are often driven by culture, not by Christ. Uh, who we marry is often driven by culture, not by Christ. So maybe on this one we're holding out, this whole issue of gay marriage, maybe on this one we're holding out, and now we're beating the slide on that one. But we face the same pressure that Israel faced. We face the same sort of pressure, assimilation to our culture. And that pressure manifests itself in, in at least these two areas, just like for them and for us. The whole issue of marriage and sexual ethics and the issue of absolutism, philosophical absolutism, belief in the one God. 
we face the same pressures they faced. And really the question for us from this text is, what will the summary statement of us be as individuals? What will God's summary statement for our church be? What will his summary statement for the evangelical church throughout America be? Will he summarize us the way he summarized the Israelites in his era? The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And before long, you couldn't tell the difference between an Israelite and a Canaanite, a Hittite, an Amorite, a Perizzite, a Hivite, and a Jebusite. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to the Canaanite sons. And they served their gods. They were in and they were of. God calls us to be in, but not of. Let's hear God speak to us from this text that we might be faithful to him in the context in which he's put us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary blessings you've given us, for the opportunity you've given us, living in the culture we do. And we thank you for the many positive aspects of this culture, where it supports the kind of things we want to do and the kind of way we want to live, and where we can support this culture in the kinds of things it does and the way it lives. We thank you for the many positives. But this morning, as we look at this text, it draws our attention to the differences. We pray for ourselves as individuals. We pray for our church. And we pray for the evangelical church throughout America. That our values and our practices, our lifestyles, would be driven by Christ more than they're driven by culture. We ask you to work in our hearts, in our lives, in our conduct. In Jesus' name, amen.